Get on with it, Mecca. I will. What we're going to do here is go back, right back to 1953 and 2013 because in 2013 we had a call from a Paul in Torquay to tell us that 2013, that was the year he's calling, was 60 years since the first Redex reliability trial was held. That was 1953. And sometimes you hear people say of life, it could never happen again, and the Redex trials certainly couldn't happen again. It was a race on all sorts of roads, public roads, many of them, tracks really. And although it was revived in the 1980s, it was then called the Variety Club Bash, whose aim was to raise money for the Variety Club as cars travelled at leisurely pace on outback roads. This was Paul from the Peugeot Car Club back in 2013. Hi, Mac. It's Paul in Torquay in Victoria. I'm just packing up my car heading for Maitland to, uh, for the start of the 60th anniversary Red X rerun. You rem- remember the Red X trials of the 1950s. The first one was won by Peugeot, which set the brand, you know, in very good stead in Australia. Mm-hmm. And we're in the Peugeot Car Club and we are doing a, a rerun of the event round Australia, 10,000 Ks, four weeks. 30 cars, most of them 50 or 60 years old. Most of them Peugeots, but with a couple of ring-ins, there's a, a, a very early VW and a Humber Super Snipe, which did well in the Red X's as well. When I can always remember being really disappointed that overseas cars winning that in the Holden wasn't winning it, but Peugeot's, and I think Volkswagen's won too, didn't they? It was very yeah, depressing. Peugeot's did well for the first couple of Red X's, and then Volkswagen took over, and more or less... For the rest of the 50s, they just won everything. They were just unstoppable, yes. I always remember that. So, well, that'll be a great time. You leave from where? Well, we leave from Maitland because it was the home of Ken Tubman, who, with John Marshall, won the first event. He was a pharmacist in Maitland, but on weekends he was a very, very serious rally driver and he won quite a lot of events. The fact that they won is amazing because in that first Redix trial, there were plenty of people like Lex Davidson who drove racing cars, you know, in the Australian Grand Prix and mm. things like that. And uh, these two guys, just ordinary guys from Maitland, whopped them. They, they uh, came home with almost clean sheet, including through the horror stretch down near just north of Goulburn. And it's amazing to think too, isn't it, we used to advertise the, the Holden as Australia's own car and this car made in France comes in and wins it. How depressing. <laughs> well, the Peugeot was very light and had very good ground clearance. And even though it didn't have a big motor like the Holden, these things really worked in its favour on those really... Because they were terrible roads in those days. And the competitors were under great uh, stress. They'd sometimes have to drive for 24 hours at a time. And they were penalised if they went too fast and penalised if they went too slow. It was a real bugger of a trial, you know. But uh, This is the 60th anniversary and yes. it starts this week from Torquay? No, no, it starts from Maitland. It starts from Maitland. And you're in Torquay, sorry, yeah. I'm in Torquay. I'm just about to start my car and drive up there, yeah. And people will see that round Australia? They will see oh. it round Australia. Will you uh, give us a keep in touch with us, Paul? We will. Over the next Sundays? And tell us how you've ripped the diff out and the sump out and hit a stump and blown up a dunny and all that sort of (laughs) stuff. Good on you, Paul. Great to talk to you. See ya. You're listening to Macca's Australia All Over podcast. From Pernalulu, the Southern Highlands, or cruising the Coronation Islands, they're all up listening to Macca. Hello, Macca. How are you going? I'm Eli. Hi, Eli. Where are you? I'm in Wangaratta on the phone box. (laughs) You little possum. How old are you, Eli? I'm 12. What are you up to this morning? Oh, not much. Just mum told me to come down here and give you a call. Oh, I go to school with Baron Duda and I just Baron. like footy, scooters and stuff like that, like sports. Where do you go to school? Baron Duda. Of course. That's easy for you to say. Baron Duda. Where's Baron Duda? 
Neighbour Donga and Beatrice. So you're in the phone box in Wang, eh? Good on you, mate. Well, that's nice to... And it didn't cost you a Zach. didn't cost you anything. No, it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I've been, I, I used to be singing your song since I was five, when I was really little. When you was really little. We've got your address. We're going to send you a present, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, mate. And thanks for ringing us from the phone box. That's all right. It's cool, all cool air this morning. Bikes, girls yeah. on bikes, they're climbing mountains, taking hikes, as morning sunlight breaks along the Yarra. Judges, barristers, chefs, baristas, designers, artists, fashionistas. It's really very Catholic on a Sunday morning. Yeah, Macker in the morning turns my week around. He picks me up when I feel down. I wait all week for Macker on a Sunday morning. The big wet's here, at least for some. The dams are full, the rivers run. As one wag said, who shot the El Nino brothers? On Kilto Station, Roebuck Plains, through drought, bushfire, flooding rains, we celebrate Australia on a Sunday morning. My weekly fix, Macca, on a Sunday morning. Good morning, welcome to the program. Uh, lots of lovely bits and pieces coming up, especially at about uh, where in our why I live, where I live segment. There's a lot of lovely bits and pieces. This is from, is it Lee? Yes, it's from Lee, who says, uh, we don't say, it's been nearly six months since so many were affected by such devastation. There's the floods in the northern rivers of New South Wales and in Gympie in Queensland and other places too. So I thought I'd share how we are progressing. People ask how we're going. Their eyes glaze over when we try to tell them, so we don't say. They don't understand the frustration when you spend endless hours trying to find a tradie only for them not to show up, so we don't say. They look at you strange when you get excited that you have a vanity and no longer have to spit into the toilet when cleaning your teeth, so we don't say. They don't understand how mentally, physically and emotionally tired you are, trying to work so you can pay for the materials and coming home after a full day of work to then spend hours doing repairs, so we don't say. The excitement of picking up a bargain on... Our marketplace, as you can't afford to replace them with new stuff, so we don't say. The doubt and questioning, should we keep going if the weather predictions are true, so we don't say. Don't get me wrong, says Lee, we are now having more good days than bad, but there is a lot we don't say, as apparently by now we should have moved on. <laughs> Lee, that's lovely. Lee, we'll see you in Korokai if you're up there around that way. Come along. Uh, I don't know what we can do. We'll just have a little morning there where we can talk to people about all sorts of things. And I hope people will come, you know, juggle and play the bones or whatever they want to do. And just have a morning there at Korokai. And uh, if you want to come from wherever you are, wherever, we're all around the place, not just from Korokai and Woodburn and uh, Environs and Lismore, etc., Casino, but from all over the place. Make a special trip or maybe on your way back home from wherever. You might have been up at Corumba or something. Call in on the 11th. The 11th. That's the story. Uh, Sue says, um, we live at Perugian Beach, Queensland. We've lived here for 32 years and I've had always to deal with brush, bush turkeys, brush turkeys, destroying our garden. We've tried numerous methods of keeping the turkeys away using mirrors, mesh and cages from environmentalists. 
uh, purchasing an environment liquid cost nearly $200, all to no avail. I now have no turkeys without killing them. I purchase and use a very small amount of chilli powder. They don't come anywhere near the property now. He makes his nest in the adjoining national park. Sue, <laughs> thanks. thanks for the tip. I thought of you, says Margaret Perkins, when I saw these blue wren glasses stand. So it's a little stand of a blue wren. And when you come in, because you're always losing your glasses, everyone loses their glasses, you just pop your glasses on the little blue wren stand and then when you're looking for them, you know where they are. They're on the little blue wren. That's very nice. Made in Beechworth, apparently. Scarf pins and rings. Blue wren glasses stand. Uh, have a great Sunday. Always listening and enjoying, says Margie. Thank you, Margie. It's nice to know you. you're listening. Just a short note to thank you for Sunday morning, says Andy. I'm a lifelong ABC Radio, all the various ones listener. Your program is so refreshing because it's almost the last show which hasn't been taken over by wokeness and identity politics, says Andy. I've got a P.S. I've got a garden full of grevilleas and beautiful New Zealand honey eaters, beautiful little birds. Andy, I'm not sure. They're probably the noisy miners, which give me a bit of a pain in the neck. Um, but, yeah, I'll take your point. New Zealand honey eaters? New Zealand honey eaters. No, they can't be the noisy miners. New Zealand honey eaters. Hmm. Beautiful little birds. I bet they are. I'll have to look them up. Um, anyway, I just thought I'd say thanks in the first handwritten letter in many years, says Andy. Speaking of handwritten letters, I've got a, little, I've got a letter here about typewriters, which is just lovely. And a lovely poem for you a little later in the in the program and a bit about Stardust. And uh, we'll talk to you, of course. Our number's 1300 700 uh, If you've just got up, you missed uh, our little National Service Day, uh, National Service Weekend, really, in Moree. They're having a get-together, National Service. We talked to Normie Rowe, who is doing National Service, I think, in the early 70s. And it was very interesting. Lovely to talk to Normie. He's still out there performing. Uh, around about the place, but uh, we'll talk to you. G'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Macca. Morning. It's Patrick here from Launceston. Hi, Patrick. It's an absolute glorious day down here in Launceston, as it often is at this time of day during winter when we get these beautiful blue sky days, and uh, it's been an absolutely fantastic last few days uh, down in this part of the world with things getting back to normal post-COVID. Patrick, uh, you, do you live in Launceston, or what's the story? No, I, I live here in Launceston. I'm uh, drifting towards retirement, so looking about uh, joining the brigade that uh, gets out and about and a bit more. I'm certainly planning that in the future. And, and part of that, we went off to Agfest in the past few days to uh, to check out a few bits and pieces. And it was <laughs> it was actually what an amazing event that is done for predominantly with uh, volunteers, you know, the Young Farmers Association, et cetera, et cetera. It was a huge event, very, very well uh, put on. People from agricultural industry, the local people from Launceston and Hobart, all around Tasmania. I think they had more than 40,000 people there over the uh, over the four days. It was absolutely wonderful. Now, tell me uh, about you, Patrick. Obviously, you come from Scotland somewhere. Is that right? Well, that's right. I usually tell people that um, I, 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 right now I'm driving an Uber, by the way, and I wear dark glasses and a silly hat. And I've got a mask on as well. And I tell them I'm from Launceston, but they don't believe me. 
something gives me away, it might be the same thing you're picking up on, Mike. What? Uh, how come you find yourself in Australia, Patrick? And how long? Uh, I'm, I, I'm a retired engineer now, and uh, having had a great career in Scotland, uh, about more than 25, uh, close to 30 years ago, I decided to I decided to come to Australia, but that actually kicked off my the overseas aspect of uh, of my career in the power industry. I did get to Australia, as you can tell, and I came down here about 20 years ago when the uh, the, the only thermal power plant down here was converted to to gas. Uh, 20 years ago. So I came down here as a technical manager for that and then became the plant manager for that uh, for five years. I uh, didn't, didn't particularly enjoy Launceston initially because it was a little bit too much like Scotland and I came to Australia. But I've since absolutely fallen in love with Launceston and fallen in love with Tasmania. And I now consider this to be one of the best places in the world. And I've lived and worked on six continents like that. There you go. Uh, well, I have not been to Scotland, but I can imagine that there's a, a touch of Scotland a, a, about Tassie in some of the cities I've been to. It absolutely is, Mark. Launceston specifically has that that one thing. I can think of a couple of uh, large towns, cities in Scotland, Perth and Inverness that come to mind, where the architecture and the layout and the feel of the place uh, is like those those two places. And, and they're places to love, by the way. But that, when I first came here, I did live for a time in, in Adelaide. And Adelaide, for someone coming from Scotland, was Australia. You've got the sun, the beaches, uh, the big wide streets. There's, you know, it was genuine there. And when I came to, finally came to Launceston, um, it, it, it was no longer that same Australia. But at the end of the day, we talk about the difference, the similarities between Scotland. The one thing it's not similar to is weather. We've got the most fantastic climate down here in Launceston. Ashfat, it's almost officially one of the best climates in the world, and that's why Launceston is a city of gastronomy, where the climate here produces the best quality of food anywhere in the world. There you go, and you'd be an expert, because you've, uh, you've had to, as a young person, you had to eat haggis, and anyone who's had to eat haggis, uh, Patrick, it becomes a, a gastronomic um, expert, if I may say so. Oh, Mark, am I, am I about to cut you off here, mate? You're talking about <laughs> haggis is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Turnip and neeps, um, is that right? Is that Absol- what it- uh, uh, that's exactly the way to do it. Neeps and tatties with a, with a, a boiled haggis. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, you've, you've, now, now you're getting me, my memory's going back. I, I feel like I need to go out and find a, find a haggis. There is a chap down in Perth, I believe. Uh, does a few, so you might you might just have me down doing that. But the other thing, Mark, I had to tell you about was from the Agfest thing. There, uh, we we've uh, we're drifting at retirements. We're on a couple of Airbnbs. I'm driving an Uber. I hire a few cars out. But as we drift towards, we are seriously thinking about travelling and joining the brigade that you're talking to a lot on a Sunday morning, and I listen to regularly. So we're very very close to now buying ourselves a, a camper van. And uh, the only thing is, it'll take us 12 months. We're going to get a new one. Uh, but once we've got that. Uh, we'll be uh, over to the North Island to catch you guys out and uh, join in on a Sunday morning. That'd be very nice. Patrick, tell me about engineering, because um, we need engineers. Engineers are the most required people in in, uh, in all of um, yeah manufacturing and, well, all sorts of things, not all sorts of areas. They're problem solvers. We, you, uh, would you describe yourself as a problem solver, uh, Patrick? Abs- absolutely, Mike. I was uh, quite a rare engineer. I, I served an apprenticeship uh, way back, oh, goodness, more than 45 years ago now, even longer than that. And uh, so I actually was came from the uh, craft background, but very quickly went into the engineering and management side of it. And, uh, yeah, it's all about 
knowing who you are in the field you're in and then getting involved. And I've just been somebody who's been heavily involved, got into the power industry. I've worked in almost every field of the power industry from nuclear to oil to coal, uh, operation and maintenance, new construction, site management, commissioning of new power plants. And here in Australia uh, and around the world, it's just been anybody that's interested in it, get in there, get involved. As you say, it's uh, when I was a kid, I used to play with radios. I used to play with old mechanical things, bits and pieces, take them apart, try to make them. The first bikes I ever had, I made myself. I used to get stuff from the old local dump and get a frame and an old wheel. Might have to buy a few tubes now and again. But basically, coming from that background, subsequently working in a power plant from in a field perspective was basically like doing what I was doing as a kid growing up. Is, sorry, isn't it interesting that uh, stories on the news today are about artificial intelligence and how there's going to be a great change and people are going to be out of work and things like that? I've got a sign on my in my room uh, and a picture of Einstein, and he says, um, I fear that technology, the overuse, basically I'll paraphrase, the overuse of technology mean that in future when people rely on um, communications, modern communications will have a generation of idiots, meaning that people like you that don't go down the tip and get bits and pieces and learn how to put them together. But it seems that, you know, we're being told that artificial intelligence will replace all that. But uh, I'm a bit more sceptical about all those sort of things. Um, and Einstein's a fairly clever sort of a bloke. But he says um, he says relying on um, uh, modern communications all the time rather than finding out for yourself, I think, is what he's saying, will mean... Uh, we won't be nearly as clever, um, and most of the clever things are done by engineers and people who are just born that way. I have a certain brain that looks at problems and can solve them. Mark, I have to completely disagree with you. Yep. I totally embrace the modern world we're living. I've actually came from technology in power plants with a control system. There was no electronics involved in the very early plants I worked in. It's what we call pneumatics and hydraulics, the actual... Uh, uh, air devices were in the control room that would send signals out, et cetera, et cetera. Today, we're for com completely uh, computerized, we're wireless. And this artificial intelligence, by the way, that's actually going to be fantastic for everyone, okay? If you go back 100 years ago, Mark, most of us worked on the farms, and yeah. it was a wonderful life for those. It was a bloody hard life for those, right? But ultimately, we've moved on. By the way, today, we get a similar amount of uh, product from farmland as we did 100 years ago. It hasn't changed dramatically. What has changed is the number of people on the land producing it has gone down to a fraction. And that's freed people up to do more uh, clever things, more high-valued things. And artificial intelligence is going to go down the same thing. Having worked all around the world in places like uh, the Philippines and India uh, and places like that, there are absolutely magical people out there that are jumping on that, uh, that new world way more so than we are in Australia. I'm afraid there's a little bit of a mindset of being stuck in the old thing. Now, I'll go back to AgFest again yesterday. I was looking at some of those machines they have out there. Absolutely mind-blowing. You've got these massive machines that can almost do the job themselves. And people say it's going to do you out of a job. You need people to design those machines. You need people to build those machines. You need people to maintain them and to program them, etc., etc. And then you've got Everybody else has been freed up to do those things that you and I can't even imagine. So I embrace the future, and I embrace the future of uh, artificial intelligence. Having come uh, from being an old crony myself in a background of uh, 
uh, and farmers. By the way, the, I grew up in a farming background where I actually had personal experience as a child working on, well, not working, but I, where there when it was working on an old thrasher that was actually driven by a belt drive off the back of a tractor. There you go. Well, lovely to talk to you, Patrick. And um, yes, keep up the good work. I hope you get your um, uh, recreational vehicle sometime soon and we see you uh, on the big island, okay? And if, if I'm coming across here, I'll be checking you out, Marker. All right. Good on you, Patrick. Nice to talk to you. Cheers. See you. Boy, wasn't he interesting? Wasn't he interesting? Putting it all in perspective. Water used in lithium iron mining is the head, heading of this uh Email, dear Macca, I keep hearing about the amount of water used in coal mining, but they never mention the amount used in lithium iron mining. Ion, that's I-O-N. I think they should mention both. Roughly 500,000 gallons of water goes into extracting one tonne of lithium. To put that into perspective, it takes around one tablespoon of lithium to produce one cell phone, meaning 500,000 gallons of water would make 190,000 cell phones. Mining takes up 65% of the um, province's water in Sala de Atacama. That's in Ch- in Chile. Says Tim, Tim Sheen. Tim, we get all sorts of amazing information. G'day, this is Macca. Hey, go, Macca. It's Norm. Hey, Norm. How are you? Um, yeah, I just thought I'd give you a call. Uh, I've been retired and living on a boat for about twenty years, and I travel pretty extensively up and down the, the East Australian coast. I've got no ambition to go overseas. I just want to have a look at this great country we live in. And I've been doing it now for the last 20-odd years. And I came up with a plan last year. Yet, If you're travelling up the coast, especially in New South Wales coast, you've got to cross a lot of river bars to get uh, in, into uh, places that you want to explore. And they're pretty dangerous places. And last year I came up with a plan that this year I'm going to head to Tassie. I'm on the way down at the moment. And as I go down, I'm going to film all the bars from the boat. And I've, um, I've bought myself a drone and taught myself how to use it. And uh, I'm flying the drone in over the bars and I'm going to edit all those videos up, put them on a YouTube channel and hopefully make it a bit safer for people to uh, cross these sometimes nasty bits of water. Oh, they are nasty, aren't they? Uh, and yeah. especially, I suppose, uh, in flood times the, recently, and, and we've had big seas too, so it must be a nightmare. Well, it can be, yeah. It, it, like, uh, I think the, the thing I've got going for me is I am retired and I don't have to be, I, I don't put myself on a timeline. And if you do it, people tend to get, um, you know, they are a nasty place. If you do them at the wrong time, they can be a shocker. But if you do it with the weather and, um, and and when everything's going right, it's quite doable. And what I'm trying to do is just, you know, give people a visual of uh, coming in over all of the bars and just, um, you know, saying, look, they are dangerous, respect them, but don't be scared of them. Um, you know, get get things right and you can visit some great places once you get up the river. I've just been up the river to uh, McLean in, in the Clarence and fantastic trip. They, they open the bridge at Harwood for you and uh, you go up to McLean. And McLean is a fantastic spot because they have uh, a couple of pontoons at the end of town there with power and water on. So you can tie up there for 24 hours and go up and have a coffee in McLean. It's great. You should. Where do you live, Norm? On the boat. On the boat. All, all the time. <laughs> well, you should come. We're going to Korokai on the 11th. Um, I don't know if you can get your boat up there, but um, you, could, uh, you could come along to Korokai. Where's Korokai? Where's the where, where, Where's that? That's up around Woodburn and places like that. Up around uh, yeah. Ballina, Lismore. 
Yeah, it would have been good if, you'd, if I'd rung you last week because I was in the Richmond River. I probably could have got up there, but um, I'm a bit further south now and I am heading south. My partner's down at Southwest Rocks and uh, I'm, I think tomorrow and the next day I've got some good weather for getting down to Trial Bay and uh, down that way. So it's a bit of a choice. It's uh, To get back up to the the, uh, the, the river at Ballina is, uh, I think, another 10 hours for me. So it's a pretty oh, yeah. slow boat. But yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. But, uh, yeah. Doing good. Well, good on you, Norman. Keep up the good work. Yeah, no worries. If anyone wants to look at it, I'm publishing it on YouTube. It's uh, it's called The Bays and Bars on the East Coast of Australia. And I've got another YouTube channel called Motor Sailing for Old Dudes. If you want to have a look at that, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be glad you can see what I actually do. All right. Good on you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Mackie. You keep up the good work too, mate. Bye. Right. Thanks. Bye. This weekend in Moree in New South Wales is the commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the beginning of national service. A lot of people probably wouldn't even know what that was. I did because when I was at primary school, uh, a couple of my teachers in fourth, I think, in fifth class were returned national servicemen. I'll always be grateful to one of them, Mr Ayres, because he taught us Gaudiamus Igatua. We sang Gaudiamus Igatua and he was only a 20-year-old, I'd say. So, and I knew that they'd been doing national service. So I was always grateful to Mr. Ayres for teaching us Gaudiamus Igator, if nothing else. He used to throw chalk at me because I was talking up the back. But that's another story. One of our famous national servicemen is Normie Rowe, and he's on the line. Good morning, Normie. Good morning, Macca. You've been uh, you've been talking ever since, I guess. You, you must have a big pile of chalk by now. <laughs> Little marks on my forehead, yeah, with indentations. Where you... <laughs> <laughs> that was the go with the teachers in those days, wasn't it? Well, they don't use ch- no. There's no chalk and blackboards anymore. And one of the good things I used to like to do was to clean the blackboard. <laughs> <laughs> so that job doesn't exist in another job that's gone out the window. Oh dear. Now what do the kids do? <laughs> they probably clean the whiteboards or something. Or, uh, I think they're given time out. I think it's time out these days. Normie, you're up there with uh, National Servicemen this weekend. How's it been? It's been fantastic. It's really surprising, Mac. I've got to say, um, I haven't spent a lot of time on the road over the last few years, of course, because of COVID. And they put it off two years. I was going to do it originally a couple of years ago, come up for the National Service Reunion and uh, commemoration. And uh, it's quite an amazing thing here in Moree. Uh, It's been a long time since I've been here. I came here first time in 65 for a show. The plaque that I was asked to uh, unveil yesterday, it has the names of all the people who died and were killed in action in Vietnam. There's over 500. But this plaque is is a chronology of the Vietnam War. What do you you mean? Well, the first person who died right through to the last person who died in Vietnam that were killed in action. And and it's set in a chronology. Now, we tried to get a chronology for the National Memorial in Canberra back in uh, 92, and the AWM wouldn't let us because anybody who died in the service of Australia had to have their name on the wall in the war memorial itself. And they were always in uh, alphabetical order which made it sometimes a bit difficult to find the one that you were looking for. But this is quite, I I could very quickly in a 
in about a minute and a half find the names of my mates who were killed and some of the boys who died before, just before I got to Vietnam, but I'd heard all about them. And then the ones who died within the four or five years after I left, you know, and uh, it was just a sort of a thrill to be able to do something like this. And when were you there and how long was your national service when you were called up? What, what is it, six months or a year or what? Well, my national service, uh, well, as it was in in the 60s, was two years. One of those years I spent in Vietnam. So this plaque that you unveiled, where's that going to sit? In the Moria RSL, is it? Or? No, it's out. It's on just right next to the Newell Highway on the way into town from the south. It's the town's memorial. I would like to see a lot of people come and visit. I'd like to see a lot of people come to Moria and, and see a really nice rural town i've got to say it's pretty the drive here from i came down from uh, the gold coast it's a long drive but you know it's it's through the scenic rim and then then down through gundawindi and mm. uh, on down the new highway but you you can get here very easily from from uh, sydney or from melbourne on a long trip and it's worthwhile calling in Speaking of people who had died in Vietnam, I was speaking to a bloke last night who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and he was telling me about Dustoff, where he went to pick up uh, bodies. Uh, that oh, was, not that... just bodies. Look, they, they had a red cross on the side of them to look like... Uh, like a target, I guess, for the uh, the Viet Cong. Um, they, they were the guys that just came in and it didn't matter if it was under fire or anything. They just came, came in and took out the wounded. And sometimes, unfortunately, they had to take somebody else who might have been killed in action. But they were magnificent people, I've got to say, Macca, just the salt of the earth. And those chopper pilots, I mean, they saved the skins of the people from Six Row when, when they were at Long's Hand. They, they really saved the day. Uh, I'm talking Just to Normie Rowe. Normie, you've been performing in Moree this weekend? Yeah, last night I did a show for the uh, National Servicemen and their partners. Uh, it, was, it was really good. We, I did a lot of the old songs, some Cold Joy stuff. Uh, G'day, Cole, if you're listening. Love you, man. I did some uh, Lonnie Lee song as well as all the songs that uh, I'm sort of reasonably well known for. And you did the national anthem as well? I did the national anthem for the uh, unveiling. You know, it's been quite a thrill this whole week because on Thursday last week I was at the Shrine in Melbourne and they asked me for uh, Vietnam Veterans Day to recite the ode. And for me to do that as a Melbourneian, a Melbourne boy, uh, at the at the Shrine of Remembrance, was one of the great thrills I've, I've ever experienced, and I guess I ever will. And I suspect, well, I know that uh, when you get together with a band of brothers like National Service, it's, it draws people together, and I, I expect there's a lot of happy faces there this weekend. Yeah, I think um, in, in some ways there's a, there's a bit of melancholy too because we're looking at the faces of, of people we, all, we knew as young blokes and we're all getting on, you know, and that's, that's a little sad. But it's amazing for, you know, anything up to 70 years that this mateship is still surviving. It's a wonderful thing. Normie, great to talk to you, mate. Good luck. Always, Macca. Love it too. Maggie's in Canberra. Morning, Maggie. Good morning, Maka. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. What's happening? Um, I was just calling up today um, in the hopes to share a bit of a spiel about 
Civic to Surf, which is a student-led organisation run out of the Australian National University here in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Tell us. So Civic to Surf was uh, begun in 2010 out of the common drive of six ANU students, um, and they ran all the way from Civic in Canberra to Bondi Beach in Sydney over four days, wow. and all for the purpose of raising awareness for mental ill health in young Australians. Wow, and that's still that's yeah. a that's a fair distance. Yeah, it's I think it adds up to be about oh, a bit over three hundred kilometres. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Better years than me, Maggie. Um, <laughs> when does that take place? So we are actually running next weekend, which is the 3rd and 4th of September, um, the Saturday and Sunday. So, yeah, it's getting very close now. Um, We have a team of 40 runners this year. um, So it's now developed into more of a relay-style run, which is a bit more accessible. And most runners run about 5K. Um, So, yeah, very exciting that this is coming up in just over a week. And leaving from Civic, what time next uh, next week? is What what day? Uh, it's an early start on Saturday morning. Uh, the first leg kicks off about 5.10am on Saturday. Okay, and, and, and 40 runners run it in relays and gets to Bondi when? Uh, around 4.30pm on the Sunday. Wow, well that's pretty good going. So um, Yeah. <laughs> and you're running, Maggie? Uh, I am. Yes, I am. Um, I'm also very fortunate to have been president of the committee this year. So I'm also helping organise it, make sure all the runners stay safe. Um, yeah. And so, and what's the name of the um, uh, charity? Uh, so we raise funds for mental health organisations this year. So Batir is a for-profit, uh, sorry, for-purpose, preventative health, um, mental health organisation. And it was created by young people for young people. Mm. So Batir was founded by ANU alumnus um, Sebastian Robertson. And the whole purpose of Batir is basically to give a voice to the elephant in the room. So after he'd kind of had his own challenges with his own mental health, he kind of realised the power of young people sharing their lived experiences with mental health and basically began Batia. Um, Batia is such an incredible organization and yeah, I can't speak any more highly of them. Um, and it's called Batia. I'm not sure. See, I've, I've heard of um, Beyond Blue and the Black Dog and things like that. Batia, B-A-T-Y-R, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So it's actually named after this elephant in Kazakhstan that learnt how to speak a few phrases of Russian. And so Sebastian saw that story and was like, wow, this is a really cool way to kind of incorporate, you know, talking about the elephant in the room and created this really cool analogy between the two. (laughs) Now tell me this again. This elephant in Kazakhstan learnt to what? Say a few phrases? Did you say or or understand a few phrases in Russian? What? Speak, I believe. I think you can YouTube it. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, Batia was the Batia. That's the name of the organisation, and that's the yes. name of the elephant in Kazakhstan. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So okay. um, I'm not sure if you know, but so suicide is the leading leading cause of death in young people um, in Australia. So what Batia does, you think about a classroom of students, right? So there's about 30 kids on average, and 
So when you think of that classroom, there'll be about seven kids on average dealing with some form of mental health issue. Mm. But then from those seven, only two reach out for support, meaning those five are left suffering in silence. So that's why the tier is so important because it kind of gives school and university age students the toolkit and the ability to kind of recognize early signs. And that's why they're quite different. I know you mentioned like Beyond Blue, which, you know, those kind of organizations are incredible and the work that they do are so incredible. But the tier is about like prevention. So they go into these schools and they give kids the ability to speak about their experiences and empower them and give them the courage to share their stories and reach out for help and support their friends, which is so incredible. Well, good on you, Maggie. Spreading the word, that's the that's the thing really, isn't it? you just got to talk, talk about everything. All right, well, good luck with your, uh, your running and uh, plenty of massage for tired muscles, Maggie. Good on you. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mac. I have a good day. See you. Bye. When I was a youngster, I went to a small school. It was a small school. It was called Oatley West Public School. Oatley was a suburb of Sydney, named after one James Oatley, a watchmaker and a convict who came to Australia in 1814 at the age of 44. So convicts were very young and very old, weren't they? Anyway, it's 75 years since the school was opened in 1946, or should I say the room was opened. Oatley West Public School started as one room, and as each year went by, a class, and therefore a room was added, so that after five or six years there was a school of sorts, still a little bush school in the city. The other night I was at a function at the school, their arts festival, raising money for the school, and I met John Robbins, who was the second pupil at said school. He lives in Canberra now, but he came back to say hello, and I'm glad he did. I'm at my old alma mater, and I'm talking to one of the first students, the second student, which is quite amazing for a 75-year-old Bush School in the suburbs of Sydney. His name's John Robbins. Good morning, John. How are you? Good morning, Ian. Nice to meet you. Well, it's great to be here. It's still a little Bush School, even in the suburbs of greater developed Sydney, but uh, you were here first in 1946. Wow, long time ago. What was it like? Very small. It consisted of one two-room portable building, very scantily equipped. One part of it hadn't even been finished. The other part was sort of just operating. The grounds were small, all natural surface, and hardly any, apart from the building area, had been cleared. But a lovely time, I, I suspect. Oh, just one, it was a one-teacher school then, I suppose. It was, yes. Miss Rowley was our one-teacher. <laughs> you started here a little little bush school in the middle of Sydney, then you went to Sydney Boys High. After that, that's correct. And, and when you left school, I suppose high school, you are about 17 or 18, I suppose? Uh, I was 17 when I left high school, that's correct. About that time the Vietnam War was about to start? It was starting, although I wasn't involved in it that early on. Mm. I worked five years in, in the glass industry from leaving school before I joined the Air Force. Although the Vietnam War was, was going, it, I was one of the later people to, uh, to be involved in it. And you went to Vietnam <laughs> flying helicopters? Correct. How did you learn to fly a helicopter? Oh, the Air Force taught me. I did my basic flying training and, and jet training. Then uh, on receiving my graduation, I was posted to heavy aircraft and I flew those for a few years before I was reposted to helicopters. It's the obvious question. What was that time like in uh, Vietnam? It was in many ways quite strange. Initially, uh, I thought that uh, I would be very tense and very worried about it, but most of the time... You're so busy 
you really uh, you don't get a chance to think about the wider implications here. You said to me earlier that it was everything in life becomes routine, even war. Correct, it mm. does. You'd go out and you'd do your flights for the day and you'd do some supporting flights, but then you'd hear of a, a battle that had taken place in a particular area and they were uh, wounded and dead to get out. And that was my principal role, was what they called dust-off, which was removing wounded people from the operational areas and getting them to hospitals. And how do you look back on that time in, you're in Vietnam? I wouldn't want to do it again. I don't really have a strong feeling about it at all. It, I never supported the Vietnam War, although I uh, accepted the fact that I was obligated to do what I did. But uh, it's nice to have it behind me. I certainly uh, wouldn't want to go through it a second time. Well, who knows what's around the corner. You never know. Oh, yeah, you're dead right. John, after that, you became an air crash investigator. That's correct, I did. What was that like? Uh, That was very interesting, very challenging, and uh, I was very happy in the job. At times it could be fairly stressful. Air accident sites are not pretty, and they can be difficult places to work on. And, of course, there's all the legal material that, that follows it, which invariably catches the investigator in, in, into activities that they'd rather not be involved in. And I suppose when you're investigating things like that, the idea is that you can learn from what's happened and maybe improve things in the future. That, that is the aim of it. The work I did was nothing to do with discipline or a regulation. It was simply to do with investigating accidents and incidents the intention of promoting aviation safety. Tell me about some of the the things you were involved in. One of the uh, accidents that I did was at a place called Marlborough, which is about 100 kilometres north of Rockhampton. It was a five fatal accident with a helicopter that crashed after running out of fuel in fog. They're all particularly unpleasant things to do, but uh, that was one that sticks out in my memory. And you were a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, so... I mean, it seems to me helicopters are particularly, um, what's the word, worrisome if, they, if you let them be. They can be, mm. yes. We always used to say about helicopters is that they don't fly, they beat the air into submission. <laughs> <laughs> Well-known comment amongst the, uh, helicopter people. But in many ways we learn more from incidents because, after all, an incident is basically an accident that didn't quite get there. And uh, the beauty of that is that you generally you've got live people, you've got aircraft that are in one piece, and uh, and it's amazing how much information you can get from those type of things, as opposed to something which is a massive uh, twisted and burnt wreckage lying all over the ground. Do you think air safety is any better or any worse these days? I mean, planes are much more sophisticated now, but generally airlines are very safe. Accidents are usually associated with bad weather too, aren't they? They can be, yes. There's a, there's a whole range of things. We look at a thing called the organisational accident where uh, there are a series of things which happen. And it's hard to explain this. We look for weaknesses in a system and if the weakness shows up there, we look for a defence within the system that stops things getting any worse. And it's only when the defences fail that you go right through and, and, and have an actual accident itself. John, it's been lovely to meet you here at Oatley West. I was a little bit after you here <laughs> at the school, but uh, we have a, that link and it was a great... When I look back, it's a great little school. I suppose yeah. everybody's experienced mostly of primary school. Did you get the cane at all? Yes, not regularly, but I did have one or two strokes of, uh, of the cane. People asked me if I got the cane. I said, yes, I did get the cane now and again, but I... 
I worked out that if I was stupid, I'd keep getting the cane, and if I <laughs> played my cards right, I wouldn't. <laughs> That'd be pretty right, I would think. And your wife Marilyn's here. Hello, how are you? I didn't think you're going to talk to me, that's but all right. that's all right. You both live in uh, Canberra now. In Canberra, yeah. we love Canberra. Why wouldn't you? It's a lovely place. Lovely. Mm. The bush cap, another bush capital. Another bush capital. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I like it's getting less bushy every day. Oh. <laughs> well, it's lovely to talk to you both, John, John Robbins, and Marilyn. Lovely to meet you, and fortuitous that we could yeah. all be to together. See you, Anne. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Jim's in Renmark. Morning, Jim. G'day, Macca. How you doing? Good, thank you. Travelling around Australia. I'm from Virginia and I'm in Renmark currently. Yeah. And it's overflowing by about a foot on the barges and none of the boats are travelling because of the extent of water flowing over more. This is all from the La Nina, Queensland, coming down this way. Uh-huh. There you go. And there are maybe one or two boats travelling in the water. The the uh, Princess Mary, I think it's called. Murray River Queen, that's it. Yep. <clears throat> that's idle. And I've spoken to a couple of companies, Renmark Houseboats, Graham, and he reckons to me he's got four of them and they're all going to be sitting idle for the next three months, looks like it. Because of the amount of water in the Murray. Yeah, and Renmark's already a foot over the concrete barges. Wow. Be a sight to see, Jim, I reckon. Yeah, it is. If I could send you some pictures, uh, <laughs> you'd be more understanding. But, um, yeah, we come up here for a cruise on a boat and they won't allow us. So what sort of a boat have you got? I don't have a boat. No, these are the... Um, oh, you want a higher uh, one? Higher one, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, the uh, Graham from Renmark Houseboats, he said to me, can't do nothing for the next three months. Wow. Well, thanks for the news, Jimmy. I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people knew that uh, around Australia. You don't get a lot of, you, know, you get local news. The locals know about it, but people in other states don't hear a lot about that. So thanks for the uh, thanks for the call, Jimmy. So uh, what oh, are you going to do? Are you going to hang around or go back home or what? Oh, we're going back home today, back to Virginia, to the Fruit Bowl, who supplies all the cucumbers and capsicums and tomatoes to Australia, why Bundaberg and Bowen are out. Mm. And WA last year, uh, I mean, WA this year, not much fruit and veg coming out of there. So Virginia is the Fruit Bowl of Australia to supply the whole Australia. What do you do, Jim? I'm a broker, produce broker. Uh-huh. And um, we supply the markets to supply the chain stores mm. with cucumbers and capsicums and tomatoes out of Virginia. So they're all coming from South Australia at the moment? All the fruit and veg mainly. A bit of bowen coming down still at the moment, but once the La Nina will start again, they're predicting the third one. Wow, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's a bit fruit scary. And price, fruit and veg prices will probably rise again around Christmas. <laughs> Well, everything always rises around Christmas, whatever the situation, Jim. Things just seem to magically rise at Christmas time, don't they? Mac, I've been listening to you for about 25 years, mate, and it's been great, and I finally got on and talked to you about it. All right. Well, thanks Thanks for your report on the river, Jimmy. Good on you, mate. No worries, lad. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Debbie is in Korokai. Morning, Debbie. Good morning, Macca. How are you? I'm good. I'm coming to Korokai. We're all coming you to Korokai. You are. 
<laughs> we are so excited. We are. The town is just buzzing. So I'd just like to say thank you for choosing us. I have actually just covered in goosebumps because oh, really? um, you have no idea what this means to our community. So thank you for all the time that you've been in, um, you know, the uh, with COVID and your first live uh, broadcasting, you chose to come to us. So we are so, so um, happy and grateful that you've um, well, we, we taken hope, this on. Yeah, I know. I hope lots of people come from all over the joint. Deb, I hope people oh. turn up from, you know, Victoria and Queensland and whatever and come and say good day. We'll have breakfast and... I don't know what we're going to do, you know. I well, always we, get worried I, I, when we're going to do an outside broadcast. I think, oh, because a lot of oh. people come to an outside broadcast and they sit there and they want to be entertained, you know. And I think, well, you know, I, did, I could juggle for a minute, but, you know, <laughs> when, when when people come, they've got to entertain us. So that's what, you've know, got to bring a story yeah. with them, Deb. So, yeah, um, yeah. No, they will. We've got a lot of um, being Korokai being impacted by the floods, like our surrounding community as well. But, um, it's it's um, we're we're still struggling to get back on our feet. Uh, people are just in a um, not in a good space. Some are, some are okay, but there's you know there's some that's still not in a good space. And um, someone like yourself that's coming to um, to give us that little bit of a boost that we're going to be okay. Uh, we're going to have markets and so forth, and there's also some um, boxing gloves from. Um, hang on, I've written Ethel, Ethel, Ethel McQueen's donated Johnny Famishon's boxing glove. They're signed by Johnny, so we can. Wow. We can uh, auction those and yeah, give the money yeah, to yeah. flood relief. Yeah, how about yes, that? Yes, absolutely, fantastic. Yes, we've got some markets and hopefully some um, entertainment for the children. Uh, Roz, um, with her amazing work um, from the Kyogre uh, Lions Club, has um, putting on a sausage sizzle with a, 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 a soft drink and there's going to be little gift hampers that, that go to everyone, um, you know, um, of all genders. And um, they're also going to be giving out some trees and seeds to put some colour back into Korokai after the after the floods. We're just looking a bit brown. <laughs> well, it's going to and, be a function yeah. of the junction, Deb. There's going to be lots of things happening, and people, if they want to see what, they'll have to be there. It's no good talking about it. They will have to come to Korokai uh, on the 11th. Love it. Uh, love it. Yes, love it. Love it. The 11th, the 11th of September is going to be a day to remember in Korokai, uh, that's for sure. I hope so. And we, I'm going to try and get a little band together. I don't know. Musicians are all over the place, but maybe so I'll get some oh, musicians to come and play some songs. So we, I'm, oh, we're looking wonderful. forward to it, Deb. We're looking forward no, to it. So, um, and we are too. So thank you for choosing Korokai. It's a pleasure. Everyone, everywhere in, in Australia, you've chosen us and we are so, ha so happy and so grateful. So thank you, Macca. Good on you, Debbie. It means so much. See you soon. Thank you. See ya. Yes, you will. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thank you. G'day, Macca. G'day. Grantly Ingram from Bombala. How are you going? Good, thanks, Grantly. Just uh, just wanted to give you a shout-out, mate. Um, we spoke uh, ooh, three or four weeks ago now about a, a council de-merger rally we had in Sydney. All oh, right, yep. Um, had a huge day and a great roll-up from um, right across the state. <clears throat> Pardon me. You all right? <laughs> um, anyway, what, it, worked, it, worked, it worked because uh, last last week the minister uh, approved the de-merger of Kutamundra Gundagai Council, Macca, so... So, um, so those people have got their own council back. 
They have indeed, yes. And uh, once they get uh, get sobered up after the celebrations, I'm sure they'll get to uh, get to get to work putting it back together, mate. But um, so yes, th- thanks very much for your uh, your interest, mate. Well, I, and I suppose it really relied on you getting, um, you know, a groundswell of people to, you know, I mean, politicians uh, take notice of nothing except. Um, you know their constituents, and the more they have, the more they'll take notice, I suppose. Um, and uh, look, I don't know the ins and outs. Some people might say that their merger was good, and others I know say uh, they don't don't like their mergers and they'd like to demerge. I I don't know if it's possible in other places, but um, it'd be nice to think that um, the council that you've got is in fact the best. Uh, the best uh, combination of things, but sometimes I think mergers, you know, as I said to you at the time, I think people say, oh, you know, we'll save money because there'll be less jobs and we'll save yep. money, but it never usually turns out that way, Grantly. No, indeed. And in fact, the minister said after six years at uh, Kudamundra Gundagai, they'd, they'd failed to make, you know, the savings that they'd promised or the, uh, you know, the increases in the efficiency and the like. So pretty well, much... Uh, isn't it nice yeah, to know, admit that? I mean, it, yeah. that's really a bonus there to say, look, yeah, we got it wrong, and and that's fine. That's what we have to do all the time, and we got it wrong, and yes, uh, so there you go. That's a great result. Yep, no, it was, and uh, so yeah, I think um, on the day at Sydney, the minister uh, was unable to speak to us, but she did send a staff member out to record the uh, proceedings, so uh, she would have, uh, you know, had first hand record of the, the people from Gundagai, Kudamundra. Tumbarumba, Tumut, Gaira, Bombala, Hilltops. Um, it was a great showing, as well as the Metropolitan Councils. And so even in the Western Canterbury Banks down, there's a, both those councils have resolved to demerge. Well, I, so it's a, you know, I'd like the. I think I'd like the one where I live to be demerged too, but I won't say anything. But um, I, I, I think <laughs> I think uh, the the closer you are to your own council, um, the better it can be for. Um, but you know that's just uh, an opinion that it's based on nothing. But um... well, we've uh, we have uh, interest in our little group from your council area, so uh, I'd, I'd say watch this space. <laughs> well, good on you, Grantley. How's things in Bombala, mate? Uh, well, we we can't put a foot wrong, Macca. <laughs> Honestly, we, we've we've missed out um, we've missed out on these mad rain uh, events uh, further north. It's um, it really is just a delight. I've got to say, to look, look at the country, the, the livestock are in good order. Um, it's difficult to find something to complain about, except the council, mate. <laughs> That's about what we got. <laughs> That's about what we got. All right, and good it's, on and you. It's going to be a nice day. Good on you, Grantly. I hope to meet you sometime, mate. Look forward to it, Maka. Thank see, you. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. G'day, this is Maka. Yeah, Rob Rooney here, Maka. Uh, yesterday. Uh, they unveiled a memorial to Rick Milosevic, who was killed in Afghanistan. Uh, it's on the road between Cheapy and Quilpie. Right. And uh, it was very moving. And uh, the army turned up, and uh, there's a lieutenant general, a colonel, and two lieutenant colonels apart from uh, a lot of other ranks. But now, it's, uh, t- tell us the story. Who, who, what was it commemorating? Rick Milosevic, him and two other soldiers were shot by a rogue Afghan uh, soldier in Afghanistan mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. Yep, I remember that, yep. And they built this memorial to Rick. And he came from, the, He came from out uh, Cheapy Way, he? Didn't came he? from Quilpie, yeah. Quilpie, yep. Yeah, some of the family still live there, yeah. And uh, it's really worthwhile if anybody's on the road between uh, Charleville and Quilpie. 
on the jump up between Cheapy and Quilpie, you'll find the memorial. Yeah, very spectacular. Yeah. There you go. And Normie Rowe rang us this morning with something similar that they've got a a plaque at, on the on the Newell Highway outside Moree, which lists all in uh, all the um, uh, blokes who were killed in Vietnam. And, yeah. and the years they were killed, sort of like a chrono- chronological uh, thing too. So there you go. All right, Rob, and you went along, did, did you? I was there, yeah. 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 And uh, it's, it's really great, but uh, real credit to those. You go and crook about the other shy councils, but uh, at least we've got a good council out here, so that's something. Good on you, Rob. Great to talk to you, mate. Uh, yeah, right up. Thanks. Bye now. See you, mate. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.